Luke 11 and starting at verse 14. So Luke 11, 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I'm just going to pray um, for us. And Father God, I thank you um, so much that you give us the wonderful privilege of um, being used by you in your mission, um, in your world, amongst your people. And we thank you, Father, in the way in which that humbles us. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you do not let us um, group around in the dark, Father, but you give us uh, your light um, to guide us. And Lord God, I I pray that this morning that you will convict us by your word, that you will challenge us by your word, that you will inspire us through your word, that you will um, give us the fervor that we need to um, be able to leave this place over the next couple of days challenged and equipped um, to better serve you. And I thank you, Lord, for the way in which we can do that in community together. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that we know that when we leave here, and as indeed as we go through um, every day of our lives, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen. I want, to, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about church planting, and uh, I think I've worked out what the difference is between church planting and normal ministry, and uh, it shouldn't be that hard, but uh, there is lots of stuff you do in church planting is exactly the same as what you do in any other context, yeah? I mean, you're, you're preaching the word, you're praying with people, you're discipling, you're seeking to reach the lost, you're seeking to grow the church. There's lots of stuff that's the same. I've worked out, though, that uh, what the difference is, is uh, church planning, uh, established church ministry is like walking on a tightrope in your backyard. Church planning is like walking on a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. There's just this, you're doing a lot of the same stuff, but the level of risk, the level of fear, uh, all the newness about it, uh, if it goes sour, everything falls apart. Uh, you don't just fall a couple of feet onto the ground and in the back, you, you, the whole thing collapses. There's a, so you're doing a lot of the same stuff, but there's a lot more risk involved. I remember um, uh, Simon Gillum, uh, Dave's uh, brother-in-law, he was, he, st- he was in ministry in one context, working as the minister of a church. He then went into church planting um, up at Morissette, I think it was, wasn't it? And um, Maitland. 
And uh, he, said, he said to me, I'm just so tired all the time, I don't get it. Uh, I'm doing all the same things I was doing before, but I'm just so tired. And what it is, is it's the dynamic of when you're planting, everything you do has a risk associated to it that you don't have in normal context, and everything you do is new. That is to say, there's, you know, when you start Bible study groups in a church plant, no one's done it before in this church before, and so it's all new. Everything you run is a new thing which brings all kinds of stresses and tiredness and so on. Now, all of that, I want to suggest to you, makes you insecure, makes us as church planters, especially in the early phases, insecure, which is good because it throws you on God, uh, causes you to uh, rely on Him, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, these things are uh, healthy for us, but it makes us vulnerable as well. It makes us vulnerable to chasing the latest thing, what is the secret? You know, how can I make this church really be the, how can it fire and how can I make it fly? Why isn't it working? They're all important questions to ask and you need to ask them. But the danger is you become very open to grasping at dumb answers, uh, to looking for answers that will be unhelpful, unbiblical and will actually undermine and ruin. Now, believe it or not, this I'm going to suggest to you, this part of the Bible, Luke chapter 11, the next chunk along in Luke's Gospel, uh, deals with a lot of this thing. Uh, central to it is the somewhat unfamiliar topic of the demonic, and it really is central to it. It's revolving around the whole issue of the demonic. Verse 14, when Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute, just, just said by the by part of Jesus' ministry, of course, you get it in Mark chapter 1, he summarised that he travels throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. It was just something he did. And you have there in verse 14 of chapter 11, when Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute, when the demon left, you have it almost as a casual observation. It wasn't particularly unusual. This is what he was doing. Um, here, his activity becomes the context for a dispute about his power. Uh, verse 15, but some said it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. You have um, this accusation that the activity he's doing, which is undeniable, is interpreted in a very different way. Uh, Beelzebub, of course, is, there's a lot of debate about the origin of that word, but it, we're told, Luke tells us, that the prince of demons, it's, it's a satanic he is the, the, the leader, the ruler of the satanic world. Now, this gives rise to a defence that Jesus offers. Uh, he talks, and, you know, I'm not going to go through all the detail of it. It's not that hard to work out. A kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will fall. If Satan's divided against himself, how can the kingdom stand? There is Jesus' defence of whether it's by the power of Satan he does this or the power of God. But then he moves into a piece of teaching about his own power. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Uh, here is a discussion, I'll come to it in a second, about the power of Jesus. And within it is some teaching about the activity of the demonic. If one demon is cast out and returns to find the house empty, then he brings a whole bunch of other demons, uh, verse 24, 25. When he arrives and finds the house swept clean and put in order, then it goes and takes seven other spirits, 
verse 26, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse. So all of this is giving rise to even fuller teaching about the demonic and how the demonic works and so on. Um, there is much here, uh, and as I say, at the centre of it is this whole focus on the issue of the demonic, uh, or actually the centre really, I'll come to this in a moment, the centre really is further, it's a further insight into Jesus and his life and ministry and so our life and ministry, I'll, I want to get there in a moment, that's really the centre when you take into context the broader uh, piece of writing that goes through here. Um, you add in what follows and it actually helps you move in this direction. Look at verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Uh, instead they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light, but when you're unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. Now, what is that? Why suddenly a discussion about light and your eye and your body being healthy and so on, having just spun out of all of this engagement with the demonic and so on? I take it, it's Jesus responding to the reactions of the crowds, the negative reactions of the crowds to his ministry. They have seen him heal a mute man by driving out the demon that was calling, causing the problem. The crowd, verse 14, was said to be amazed. They're astonished. But verse 15, some attribute the miracle to the demonic itself. That is, they fail to see what is there to see because of their eye. Which I think is undoubtedly a metaphor for the grid you bring to your perception. Your ability to see things is shaped by what you bring to it, not simply by the reality that are there. Now, this is not hard to illustrate. We have a, um, a night church uh, full of 20-somethings. There's hundreds of them, and it's one of the things you see uh, in a context like that, as, as I'm sure you'll have noticed in other places, is that it's dating heaven. So we have um, this constant dance of young men and women all moving together and so on. In fact, in the last two months, we've had eight engagements. It's an astonishing time. Uh, as, in fact, it's a painful time watching all of this dance happening. I've decided I'm just going to pin up the back of a list. Men, women, here's our recommendations. <laughs> you know, in fact, my daughter said to me three days ago, my daughter's a 19, 20-year-old girl, she said, um, I found out, Dad, that one of the men at church, one of the young men at church has got a list, and I'm number three. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't pursued who's number one and two, but uh, we were a bit, we were discussing together why it might be she's three and does it really matter and what would he be on her list and anyway, that, that's a, what, uh, <laughs> it's a father at work, but at night church you get this kind of thing where you get a young guy and a group of people and in the mix is a girl, a young girl, and she's laughing very loudly at all his jokes and she's doing this thing, she's kind of flicking her hair like this and laughing laughing now what do I see when I look at that what are you seeing when you look at that you're looking at a girl who's on the move yeah she's got a sight set what does the young man see nothing <laughs> he, he just thinks his jokes are funny <laughs> do you know what I mean he's just he's going this is awesome I, I mean I know I'm a funny guy and finally someone gets it he doesn't appreciate he doesn't what what he sees is not what is actually there. 
And I want to suggest to you it's because of the eye that he brings to it, or the fact that he's not married and has a wife who can explain to him what actually is happening. <laughs> but um, uh, it's a simple thing, yeah? You, we can all see the same reality, the same physical thing, but what we see in it, what, what we perceive in it, is different because of what we bring to it, uh, the eye that we have. Um, now, that's a trivial illustration. Of course, there are more fundamental ones, the world around us. Um, when you and I look at the world around us, we see everywhere and all the time the evidence of the hand of God. I was talking to a woman on the Sunday at church who's uh, pregnant with twins. I mean, we have the whole, <laughs> the whole movement through this thing, but they're pregnant with twins. And, um, and we were just marvelling at the extraordinary nature of a, a child being knit together in the womb. That is phenomenal. God. Now, we see that because of our eye that we bring to it. But many people in our community just see nature, yes, and it, they don't see anything remarkable and so on. But once your eye is good, you see what you're meant to see everywhere when others who don't have the eye that's good don't actually see it. They see it, but they don't perceive it and understand it. It's why the text of a Bible can be difficult for some people. Uh, you, you may have experienced this as well, but you go through, say, a passage like Romans 9, and it's difficult for some people. Now, why is Romans 9 difficult? Well, it's difficult because of the perceptions and worldview and the way I see life. All of that I bring to the passage, and what's clear and straightforward and evident in the passage about the sovereign God who will have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion, raised you up for this very purpose, and why can you still blame me? Who are you to answer back to God? Shall what is formed say to him be formed? All of that is difficult for people. But why is it difficult? It's not difficult. It's different because I bring an eye that's full of human-centred, humanistic, proud thinking that will not have a God like, and I can't believe it's saying that. And so, just by the by on this actually, it's a little bit off track, but ministry isn't just teaching the Bible. Ministry isn't just explaining the Bible. The ministry is explaining the Bible week in, week out, day in, day out, to create an eye that sees things as you're meant to see things. It's actually building up a whole world view and, you know, it's cyclical. It's kind of, I wrestle with the text to reshape the way someone sees things so that when they see the text again, they see it better than they saw it before, which helps them see even more of what they didn't see, which shapes them again a little bit further. It's that whole ongoing process of slowly reshaping the whole of the way I view life and my existence, and God, and me in this world, so I get things better, yeah? Which means Bible teaching isn't simply saying lots of ideas that the effectiveness is measured whether they can remember it on Tuesday. Don't get caught into measuring the success of preaching ministry by how much people can recall. It's actually the success of a preaching ministry is how much over a period of months, years, people are transformed to now see things they weren't seeing. And that doesn't happen with a 15-20 minute sermonette. Once your eye is good, you begin to see what you're meant to see. Now I dare say that's the same in evangelism as well. As we evangelise people in our particular context uh, who are so far back from the things of the Christian faith, Evangelism isn't just preach one gospel message and bang, people get converted. Miraculously, God can still do that. 
But typically what it requires is a long process of shaping the way a person thinks and building up pieces in their whole mindset and so on so that when you come to the atonement, the atonement makes... That takes a long time and that's what we're about in our life and ministry together. It's critical. What we bring, the I we bring to things, especially spirit things, impacts how we see the world of the spirit. It's why we can make wrong assessments about the truly spiritual ministry. And uh, more and more today, we're having people who come to us who have a whole worldview that's distorted, and so they're looking for the wrong things. We, in the early years of our ministry, had people come and then drift off again. And, uh, uh, I mean, we still get it, but people would come, and typically the reason they would then leave is because they wanted a more spiritual ministry. And what they meant by that was that they wanted a ministry that was more inspiring, uplifting, dynamic, uh, powerful, successful. They'd formed a view that if the spirit was evident in a place, you you would know the spirit is in a place is when you sing that the hairs on the back of your neck will tingle. And if that's not happening, then the spirit's not here. And I'm going to go and find a place where the spirit is. Beware, of course, the um, letters to the churches in Revelation... um, I know you have the reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. Uh, I know you think you're rich and so on, but you're wretched, pitiful and poor. Our ability to perceive what is in the spiritual realm is severely broken. The eye that we bring to these things is severely broken. And part of our task is to help people get a proper eye, a proper instinct for what you'd expect when the Spirit is at work, and this isn't easy. What is it that you would expect to see if the Spirit is at work powerfully in a church community? You'd expect to see humble, sacrificial love. By this you'll know that you are my disciples. Love. That's what you expect to see. When the eye is bad, the whole body is bad, you end up seeing things poorly, making poor assessments and judgments because of the way you see things, which then leads you further and further away from the light that's Christ. Now, all of this flows out of Jesus engaging in battle with the demonic, which is actually perhaps an overstatement. It's hardly a battle. He speaks a word and uh, the demon is crushed. Uh, Jesus is the strong man, fully armed, coming to take possession. Now, A couple of comments here, though, about the demonic. First, the demonic world is real. Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Uh, I assume that that's a given amongst us. I haven't met a pastor yet who doesn't believe in the demonic. Uh, I assume it's a given. It may not be as often consciously what we are aware we're engaged in in our ministries as it ought, but we believe in it. Second, affirming the reality of the demonic, uh, being conscious that our ministry isn't against flesh and blood, doesn't mean you have to focus on the demonic in your ministry. Because the New Testament doesn't focus on the demonic. Uh, You know, this chapter 11 here of Luke is some of the only teaching on the teaching on the demonic in the Bible. The demonic is mentioned on numbers of occasions, but there's very little focus on it. 
and very little teaching about it. The demonic appears at the edges of the New Testament, the periphery. It's there, it's real. Jesus does engage with it, but he engages with it on the periphery. Enough is said to remind us that it's real, but not nearly enough is said to form a full understanding of how the whole demonic world works. That's important. Beware those who do give you a full understanding. And it's often usually, it can't be because of the New Testament, because there's not enough there to... It's often because of their experiences, which means they're relying to build up their view of the demonic upon the demonic. Now, we have worked out in the legal system that the worst way to work out what actually happened was to ask the criminal what happened. You know, oh, you didn't do it. Well, he said he didn't do it. It's... (laughs) Case closed. The worst place to go to work out what's going on in the world of the demonic is the demon. Uh, very unreliable. Now what is clear here, I'll suggest to you, is from Jesus' teaching, is that there is a great inadequacy about exorcism, or whatever word you want to use of casting out the demonic. Jesus might cast out a demon, but if it returns and finds the house it left empty, verse 25 and 26, then there is very little that has been gained by the deliverance ministry. If nothing fills up the vacancy. Jesus, I take it, is making a comment on his ministry. He's saying, you see me exercise this power over the demonic, I speak and they flee. The strong man is is here, which means the kingdom of God is amongst you, where the kingdom of God means the rule of the king is now here. But I think what he is saying is that there's something inadequate about what I've done so far. Let me take it step by step. Jesus makes the point in verse 23, there's no neutrality. There is no Switzerland. There's no neutrality in the war. Either you're for me or against me. Put that piece in place. I cast out a demon. Does that just leave the person neutral? No. It leaves them in a worse position. Now you come back a little bit further and I think this helps make sense of some words of Jesus that come right out of the blue in verse 13, linking us back into yesterday. You look there in verse 13. Well, actually, 11. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then, you are, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give? You expect him to say... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts? But he doesn't. Suddenly, out of the blue, comes this. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Like, there is a whole new thing. Why does he suddenly jump there? Now, I think it's so much the key, I'm going to do a little bit more work with you on it. In fact, I think it's tied in with the I. 
it's important to get the right eye to see what Jesus is saying here. If your eye has been shaped by 20th, 21st century materialistic society and the way we think about the spirit world and the material world and all of it, if that's how your eye has been shaped, then you will tend to think in terms of, you know, Christians and the church need more of the spirit. We need to be more in touch with the spirit realm. The reason we're struggling is because we lack the fullness of the spirit. Then your eye, the lens through which you read this passage, will mean that you find evidence here in verse 13 of chapter 11, and I've heard it be expressed like this, of evidence that we need to pray more for the spirit because Jesus promises he'll give more of the spirit to those. But the problem with that is... He doesn't say, get more of the Spirit. He says, ask and your Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. He doesn't say, you'll get more. He says, you will receive. Now, what is that? We'll get their context, get their eye. Their eye is the Old Testament. And let me take you through a couple of passages in the Old Testament. Let's see if we can do this. The context, come with me to Ezekiel 36. Flip back there. Ezekiel 36. Verse 24, it's the great promise of God to uh, restore and rescue. And listen to the way it's termed. I will take you out of the nations, I'll gather you back from the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from your idols. I will give you a new heart. Now get the context here. Here is Israel that has um, uh, brought great um, contempt to the name of God by being in other nations. It's brought the name and honour of God down. He's going to do a new work of rescuing them and he's couched it in terms of cleansing them purifying them, giving them a new heart and verse 26, putting a new spirit in them. Verse 27, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Here is the great promise of God to bring a new work, a work of the spirit, a work of the spirit associated with a whole new cleansing, a whole new purifying, a whole new remaking of people that they will now live in purity and holiness before God honouring him, and so on. Come with me to Jeremiah uh, 31. Let's see if we can do that. Here is the uh, classic expression of the new work of God. Verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time. I'll put my laws in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They'll be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For, here's the big line, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So much of that language ties into Ezekiel 36. God will put 
uh, write a new law on the heart. He'll change the way the whole inner workings of a person operates. Ezekiel 36, that's by the Spirit. It'll all be tied into the covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of forgiveness, where God will remember their sins no more. It's a great new work that the Old Testament looked forward to, the work of the Spirit who will one day come. How is this hope to be realised? Come back to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and his roots, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by his eyes and so on. Here is the promise that one day a new work will come, and it will come by a new king, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It'll be a new ruler, but it will be a spirit ruler. So you have the new covenant, the covenant of forgiveness, where there'll be cleansing from inside, a whole new person will be made, a new heart. God will put his spirit in them. This new covenant will be brought by the new spirit king, the one upon whom the spirit rests. You come into Luke's gospel, of course, and what do you have? You have Jesus himself at pains to tell us, Luke at pains to remind us that Jesus is the one upon whom the Spirit rests. He is the Spirit King. Come. Now with that background, here in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus is talking about suddenly, if you like, out of the blue. If then you were evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, if you've got the right eye, if you've got the Old Testament eye, you're not thinking awesome tongues. You're thinking awesome, the Spirit covenant. The hope of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 36 and Jeremiah 31 and Isaiah 11. The hope of the ages is now being spoken of by this Spirit, Jesus, the Spirit Messiah, the Spirit King. You are thinking the promise of forgiveness, the promise of a new heart, the promise of cleansing from within, the return finally from spiritual exile. Do You see, when your eye is right, you will see what you're meant to see in these verses. The best gift that the Father who loves his children can give is the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the, is the gift of the new covenant. It's the gift of new life with God, the Father, being brought into a new relationship with him. And you get, of course, at the end of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, almost the last words there, uh, and you will receive the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts opens with, wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Pentecost then arrives, which is the great fulfilment of all the hopes of the Old Testament with the coming of the Spirit. Um, here's the thing. Jesus has cast out demons, yes. But he is making the point here that casting out demons isn't the solution. What is necessary 
far more than casting out, is the blessing of receiving the Spirit. Such that a person is possessed by God now and is not empty. Jesus was alerting his listeners to the inadequacy of even this spectacular work. Healings, exorcisms. He turned from them to set his face to Jerusalem. To do the, the work that would make it possible for the new covenant to come in. The covenant of the Spirit. The covenant of forgiveness. Where there'd be a whole new man, woman made within the old. That was the far bigger thing. Now you pull all this together. What part did exorcisms, deliverances have in Jesus' life and ministry? Now I, I ask that because it can feel to 21st century materialistic people who want a touch of the divine as if this work, the dramatic casting out work, is really engaging in the spirit realm. When the work that is really the big spiritual work is the work of establishing the spirit in someone's life. That is, what matters most is not taking a particular physical problem that a demonic spirit produces in someone's life and releasing them from that. The really important work is the work of shifting them now to have an allegiance to Jesus in the new covenant, which is forgiveness, which brings the work of the Spirit to transform the whole of life to now be one with a new heart for the things of God. And that work happens by the ministry of the gospel. Do you remember Acts chapter 2 and the words of the Apostle Peter? After the extraordinary events of Pentecost, that first Pentecost, Peter says, repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Do you see how the Apostle Peter links it all together? Repent, believe the gospel, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit, find repentance of your sins, be forgiven, and the promise is for you and for all who are far off, for all who'd put their faith in the Lord Jesus. So what about exorcisms? Deliverance ministry, what part does that have in any of this work? Well, if you've wrestled through this kind of material through the Gospels, the book of Acts, what you find is that uh, the demonic... And the casting out of the demonic is almost an exact parallel to healing. Uh, in fact, casting out of demons is talked about as a form of healing. Have you noticed that um, whenever Jesus deals with a demonic possession, it's always uh, to deal with a physical problem. It's always to deal with the mute man, the, the man kept alone, violent and aggressive, the, the child who threw himself into the fire... Jesus casts out the demon and brings physical healing. In fact, I'd suggest to you, healing is the same as casting out, which is why when Jesus sends the 72 out, uh, he, he sends them out to heal, but they come back talking about casting out demons. 
Now, it's not because they took their task wrongly, it's because they understood that the demonic manifests itself in physical problems, which to cast them out is to bring healing. It's important because wherever Jesus confronted immorality, greed, faithfulness, spiritual apostasy, whenever he faced those kind of moral problems, he never deals with it by casting out a demon. He always deals with that person as a responsible being who needs to be called to repentance and faith. Different kind of ministry. That is not irrelevant. Um, you see, in the same way that healings, uh, you know, they, they were not a nothing. <laughs> they, they just weren't the deeper work. Is the same way that exorcisms weren't a nothing, but they weren't the deeper work. They weren't more spiritual. Um, each of those things, a healing, casting out a demon, uh, they were tastes of the power of the king being present to set things to right, to give tokens of the freedom that the gospel was bringing in the new age. But the greatest deliverance needed was the deliverance from a deeper captivity, the captivity to sin. And so by that captivity to Satan's accusations, which was a captivity to condemnation and death. That's the activity of Satan that needs to be destroyed and overthrown. Because Satan is the father of lies. His deepest and most powerful and most frightening work is the work of bringing condemnation to sinners before the righteous God. It's not making them mute. The power of Satan is overcome by the cross. John 12, and I think I'm right in saying this, in John's Gospel there are no exorcisms, no deliverance ministry except the one expressed in John 12 where Jesus casts down Satan by being lifted up. It's the cross that robs Satan of his real power and by the Spirit of God, eyes are opened to the truth to escape the web of lies that Satan weaves. And so we find the truth sets you free. The truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel. And all of this gets back to the eye so that as the gospel releases me, I'm now able to see and I'm released from the lies and I can see the world the way it is and the spiritual thing the way it is and what matters in the spiritual realm and what's the priority and how all of this works together. What is the deepest spiritual activity? What activities are the ones that are moving forcibly and powerfully in the spirit realm? Well, it's the activities when you're preaching the gospel, praying about the kingdom, these are the things that bring the new covenant experience to people, appealing to them as responsible humans, even though there may be demonic problems going on. I can still address them as responsible. I can call them to the things of Christ, to repentance and faith, through the prayerful, powerful ministry of the gospel word. I'm stressing this for us because in the context of planting, in the seemingly small gains that we can get and the little fruit that we can often see and the stresses and strains it puts you under, make sure you keep looking at your work with the right kind of eye.
to see what it is you are actually doing. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And so then the Apostle Paul rolls straight into the armour of God, which has no mention of deliverance ministry. It speaks about the offensive weapon of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, prayer in the Spirit. These are the things that God has equipped us with to engage powerfully in the spirit realm to bring about conquest in the spirit realm, although people with the bad eye, people with the wrong eye, won't see it for what it is. And they'll see it as very plain and ordinary, unspiritual, undramatic, unexciting. They'll want to go somewhere else where the spirit's more powerfully evident. Walking past a group of people gripped by the Spirit who are determined to love one another sinners that we are. In the humble context of fellowships that struggle, that that are sometimes small, that are sometimes despised, but it's that context with the right spirit eye that we see wonders happening. Be encouraged and be strengthened to continue to look to what God calls us to look to as the powerful work in the spirit realm.